brought to you by BASF. We create chemistry. Hello, everyone. You are listening to the Studio 1.0 podcast straight from the tech team at Bloomberg News. I'm Emily Chang, and we have a special guest with us the next few weeks, Brad Stone, our global head of tech here at Bloomberg, and a voice you're going to be hearing for the next few weeks. Hi, Emily. Thanks so much for doing this, Brad. Thank you for inviting me. So this is like the postseason of Studio 1.0. If you missed last season, uh, just download the episodes. We talked to Sean Parker. We talked to Jeff Weiner. We talked to Pad Mastery Warrior. And it was such a success. We're back for more. On this episode, we're going to talk about Y Combinator, which is the most powerful tech incubator in the world, often called the Harvard for startups. And it's become so much more than it was at the very beginning. YC started out funding less than a dozen companies. Today, they founded over 1,100. They're doing late stage investing. They've got this new thing called OpenAI, a nonprofit AI research company. And uh, they've become quite a power player in Silicon Valley. Although, do you think people outside our little bubble know what it is? You know, that's that's a good question. They do have uh, entrepreneurs pitching from all around the world. That's true. That's I believe true. more countries than ever. Well, let me give a little, uh, a little description of what I think is the most exciting part of Y Combinator, which is the end of this biannual cl- uh, uh, process that they have called Demo Day. It's two days at the Computer History Museum uh, down in Mountain View. It's kind of like a debutante's ball for startup founders. Everyone in the program gets just a couple of minutes to present their business to basically the cream of the crop of Silicon Valley venture capitalists. It's this incredibly high-tense environment. You see presentations go south. You see speakers melt down. And yet, you know, every time there are a couple of companies that get anointed by the Sequoias and the Benchmarks and the Kleiner Perkins and basically, you know, get that funding to go accelerate their their dreams. Some of the biggest companies to come out of YC so far, Dropbox, Airbnb, Reddit, Instacart, Coinbase, Stripe, Twitch, Cruise Automation, which actually was just bought by General Motors for a billion dollars, which I believe is the biggest YC exit ever. Because otherwise, a lot of this wealth is still on paper. Sure. Although you wonder, I wonder if if they have sold some of their shares and some of these real unicorns in the secondary market. We don't know. But, you know, what might say more about the, the funding environment, the overall environment that we are living in right now in Silicon Valley is how many of the companies in Y Combinator you haven't mentioned, right? There are some, those are the successes. There have been many more failures. Some companies that have gone out of business, maybe, maybe they've merged with someone else or just kind of zombieing along. Um, but, you know, it's it's like every venture capital firm and really the model of this weird ecosystem that we live in now that, you know, you only need a couple of these companies to pop. And certainly, you know, you mentioned Cruz, Dropbox and Airbnb right now are looking awfully good for Y Combinator. Dropbox CEO Drew Houston will be coming up. Also, we're going to be speaking with Airbnb co-founder and CTO Nate Wacharzik. We're going to be speaking with Sam Altman, the head of Y Combinator, who took over for Paul Graham, who ran Y Combinator for many, many years and founded it with Jessica Livingston, his now wife. They were actually uh, one of my first guests. I like when you asked Jessica about Paul's somewhat incendiary public essays about things like equality. Uh, You get some negative uh, feedback for those, and she did not. She didn't seem to want to touch that. He's had some controversial things to say and you know you'll hear her response to that coming up because they were um, you know 
an early guests on this show, I went back to the original episode and back to the story of the founding of Y Combinator, and they were just dating at the time. And the big innovative idea they had was to fund a few startups at once. And what they didn't realize is that it had huge economies of scale. Of course, it's worked out for Y Combinator, but it also meant that all of these little startups who uh, would otherwise have been alone in this process building their companies had a bunch of colleagues that they could commiserate with and celebrate with and share stories with, and it's become so much more. What's interesting You'll hear this from, from Jessica a, a bit later on, is that after all these years and all of her involvement in, in startups, it's still impossibly hard to predict which companies will be the really successful ones. And we still don't know. Right. That's the, and that's the entire game of Silicon Valley, right? You're, you're kind of spray and pray. So we're going to start this off with a conversation with Sam Altman, who is, has been running Y Combinator since 2014, as well as Dropbox CEO Drew Houston. Uh, Dropbox has some pretty tough questions facing it right now, valuation, can it be as big as some investors thought it would be, uh, mutual fund write-downs. Take a listen to this conversation. So I want to start with that elephant in the room. What do you have to say to the mutual funds? You know, we, we don't pay that much attention to it. What we focus on is we have 500 million people using Dropbox, uh, 8 million businesses using Dropbox, 150,000 of them paying companies like Expedia, Echolab, all these new big deals that we're doing. Uh, our customers are happy, and we're happy. If you could do it all over again, would you take money at a $10 billion valuation? Yeah, I mean, the, the markets were different then. And so we're, we, like any company, are going to be affected by the public markets. You know, whatever we are today will be something different tomorrow. So we, valuation is really an output, and so you have to focus on the inputs. So on one hand, you know, people say the write-downs don't matter. This is just on paper. You know, we've seen like Snapchat's gotten written down and then written up. But on the other hand, it, it does seem to be having a ripple effect on, on sentiment. And so how much do they matter? Look, I, I really, I think this is a dumb conversation. I, I, I think it doesn't matter that much. The stocks go up and down. Um, you know, Fidelity, as you just said, marks them down and up. Um, you know, I know Fidelity marked down, marked down the Dropbox shares at one point. It's unclear to me if they themselves even believe the markdowns because I once before have offered to buy shares from them after they marked them down um, and they didn't sell them to me. But I'll offer that again if they want to sell us the Dropbox shares at their latest Rude, price they, that they marked it, it down to. We'd matter. love to buy them. Because it is affecting sort of sentiment. Even if mm. it's not you know, sure. changing the decisions that you're making at, at Dropbox, it's affecting sentiment about Dropbox. Well, I think you, you have these private companies at a scale that where they never were before, or they would have long been public. So I think everybody's trying to figure out how to talk about them, and, and there's sort of a new playbook being written. Um, but when you talk to investors, what they, uh, the, the markdowns, markups, whatever, it, it's really a bookkeeping thing. It's not like the, the fund manager sitting there you know, evaluating the performance of the company. So um, they kind of roll their eyes at it, honestly, too. So they, they focus on, or what we focus on is like, look, we're, what are the ingredients of a great company? You have to have a big market, awesome team, product that people love. That's what you need to spend time on. Look, what, what Dropbox has is a, uh, a product that people love so much they spontaneously tell their friends about. Mm -hmm. um, and there are 500 million of these people. And they use it for something that's really important, like what your data is is really important. Um, and there are a lot of other things we can talk about about Dropbox that, that maybe are problems or maybe threats. But like valuation, markups, markdowns, uh, I don't think the best people care. I really don't think they do. I think if you're willing to hold Dropbox shares for a long period of time, which you should do whenever you buy a stock, you know, like any stock, markets misprice things up and down at different times, and that is not what matters. The, if you make, this has worked for YC for a long time, if you make a product that people really, really love, and you figure out a business model and a network effect, 
um, and a defensible business. You, you'll be in great shape if you're patient. So what do you care about when it comes to Dropbox? What are your questions for Drew House? Um, well, I am a huge Dropbox user. I don't know what I would do. I don't know how I would like organize my life without Dropbox, because I use it to sync my computers and store all my files, and that's how we share all the files at YC. Um, so we'd be in a really bad place without Dropbox. So please don't stop offering <laughs> service, is what I would say. We'll be around for a while. You know, early in the, in the early days, people were worried Google would kill you. What did you do to make sure that Google didn't kill you? Well, Y Combinator's motto is make something people want. And I think that's a pretty good foundation for any entrepreneur. And so our customers love Dropbox. They, we have spent so much time, time building a product that people really love. Um, this is the one thing that we do. And uh, we've built a huge audience. And we're solving a problem that every person, every company in the world has. And so that is really at the heart of building a, su a successful company. So actually, one thing I've always wanted to ask you related to that, when you guys were in YC, I remember everyone was saying, well, Google's going to kill them. Well, Apple's going to kill them. Everyone's going to like, you know, Google has this product that was ready to launch yeah. for years, and it kept getting delayed, and it was going to be the Dropbox killer. And then Microsoft had mm -hmm. one. And that, I think, actually is a tough thing to manage around, because that is something that scares good people. Mm -hmm. How did you motivate the team or deal with the uncertainty when you had these 800-pound gorillas that were always just around the corner? Well, I think a lot of the people, probably most of the people that join the company have been Dropbox users for a long time, and they love the product. And when you step back, you realize that any company that becomes great always has competition. Right? Facebook was worried that Google was going to come after them. Google was worried that Microsoft was going to come after them. Microsoft was worried that IBM was going to come after them. If, you're not, if you don't have competition, you're not doing something important. So competition is a fact of life. And um, I think uh, Jeff Bezos says it really well. It's like you want to be customer obsessed, not competitor obsessed. Right. So you've gone from YC founder to global CEO. How has your role changed? And what are the sort of lessons you've learned along the way? Well, so as a CEO, when you start out in your, uh, Arash, my co-founder and I started in an apartment not too far from here uh, when we moved to San Francisco. Um, so just there, the, the, there's a lot more balls in the air, right? So not only do you have to build the product, which is all you're worried about in the beginning, but then you have to get customers and you have to make sure your business model works and you have to open offices all over the world. So um, a lot of what I focus on is really getting the best team in place. I'm always recruiting and really designing the architecture of the company so that we can scale as we get bigger, we can still be fast and solve bigger problems. To that end, you, you have basically done exactly what you said you were going to do in your YC interview. <laughs> this is somewhat rare, but we like that when it happens. Um, but you, you have sort of accomplished that, that vision of where you said you'd be 10 years from then. So where will you go in the next 10 years? Uh, you know, now that we never have to move our data around manually or our files around manually, like, what, what will you build next? Well, what we think about is, is Dropbox is moving from keeping your files in sync to really keeping your team in sync. And so one is about storage, but more and more it's about communication. Mm -hmm. It's about collaboration. It's like how do you make it so that people can work together more easily? And it's kind of crazy. When I visited my dad in the office for like bring your kid to work day, like he had the fastest computer, fastest internet, just best everything compared to what we had at home, which is like dial up, the slow, old versions of everything. And now it's flipped. Right? Instead of the work stuff, work tools being better, now my tools in my personal life are better. And I think about things like, wait, it's crazy. You can search with Google, you can search all of human knowledge more easily than you can search, you know, I can search my company's knowledge. Right, right. Yeah, where I have one search box over here, at work I've got 30, even in a born in the cloud kind of company. And so 
Um, so much has changed with how we work, and so, or sorry, so much has changed with technology, so much has changed with how we live. It's amazing that I'm still using the same tools as my dad and cleaning out my inbox and you know, using all these things that were designed 30 years ago. Right. So uh, Brian Chesky has told me an IPO for them is at least two years out. <laughs> What's the answer from, from, from you? you know, how are you thinking about an IPO? Is that still going to happen? And when would you be open to selling the company? So I mean, IP, we don't need to raise money. So there's, it's not something that we need to be too worried about. I mean, not, some things have to line up. You need to have the, the controls and foundation in place. Uh, the, you know, the business needs to be doing well. Um, and then the condition, then the market needs to be good. And so the market has not been very kind to public companies lately, or you know, public tech companies lately. So we're not exactly in a hurry. And that's why, um, you know, it's part of the flexibility we've gotten by by raising money, and now more and more, it's the flexibility we have because we're funded by our customers, not our investors. So, quick, so quickly, how do you keep employees motivated as you, you know, put off whatever exit there is to ha be had? Well, I think we keep them. We help everybody understand that what's the, the most, the best thing we can do for anyone who's a shareholder is make the stock price go up in the long run, and, so, and you do that by building value. And so we tr try not to get fixated on you know what, what's the valuation right now. Um, people will get liquidity. We'll solve these problems. But the most important thing we can do is just build a great company. Brought to you by BASF. We create chemistry. We've been listening to Sam Altman, head of Y Combinator, and Drew Houston, CEO of Dropbox. My favorite moment in that conversation was when Sam told me it was dumb. Yeah, this is, I a, dumb, this that. is a dumb conversation. What are you? What, what were you thinking when he said that? You know, I I love people being authentic, and I felt like he was telling me what he really thought. And he thinks the whole thing is overblown. I don't know if he's actually right. I do think it's impacting sentiment. Dropbox, you know, is under a lot of pressure right now, and. Unfortunately, we don't get a lot of information about these private companies. So these mutual fund write-downs are guiding a lot of the conversation. Right, that's true. I mean, I understand his frustration, right? A fidelity markdown does not represent in any way consensus about the valuation. To Drew's point, he offered to buy those shares from Fidelity and they declined, so maybe that says something. On the other hand, I mean, I think it's fair to have the conversation because this is, you know, these companies have the luxury of staying, staying private for so long, they employ so many people, uh, you know, they have actually, they're large enough now to have really an impact on the overall climate here in, in the Bay Area, and this is a measure of how they're doing. And, you know, we don't have revenue numbers, we don't have growth numbers. Um, now, I think, you know, Drew and Sam made a, made a number of good points about their focus on uh, the customer and how beloved the product is. I use Dropbox. You I know. use Dropbox too. I, I love it. I can't get by without it. Uh, at, on, on the other hand, it's probably overdue that we get a real look at how this company's doing. I, I think the question is how can they expand the business model? They've tried to go after this family of apps idea that we're seeing at Facebook. They bought Mailbox, which they eventually shut down. They had this photo app called Carousel, which I actually used a lot. That has also shut down. You know, I appreciate Drew's willingness to take this on and uh, answer these tough questions. I thought it was interesting, though, uh, when I asked him, would you take money at a $10 billion valuation if you could go back and do it all over again? And he said, yeah. 
Yeah, well, and that was the that was the game. he was playing the game on the field, uh, as as they say. I thought it was interesting that he sees the future of Dropbox in communication because now that's a a, a market that uh, where Slack, you know, another another high profile startup is uh, is really gaining momentum. Uh, Drew talked about moving from keeping your files in sync to keeping your team in sync. It's a nice soundbite, but it makes me wonder. To your point about the the uh, the challenges they have had in branching out from just file storage, what they really plan there. You mentioned Slack. Slack is one of the few companies right now that seems to be on this up and up trajectory and, and can do no wrong while we're hearing about other companies having trouble raising money, flat rounds or down rounds. It, you know, it's sort of reminiscent of the financial crisis in 2008, 2009, the time when Airbnb was actually born. And it was fascinating to hear Nate Blacharsik, the CTO, talk about just how hard it was to raise money. It took them a year. A year no one gave them money. Uh, so take a listen to this conversation between Sam Altman, again, head of Y Combinator, and Nate Blacharsik, co-founder of Airbnb. Airbnb was started in a recession when the economy turns down, people are looking for new ways to make money. Now that we're seeing another sort of broader economic downturn, hotels are banding together. How is this impacting your business? Um, so far, we haven't seen any impact, actually. Uh, last year was a huge record year, uh, and this year is off to uh, a strong start. You know, I think the, the great thing about Airbnb is we're offering consumer choices. Um, not only do they get a more personal experience, more authentic kind of travel, um, but also we have price points at any level. So in a recession, uh, there are uh, opportunities to still travel and find something in your price right, point. That's what I was wondering. Is, like, does business go up for you almost in a recession? Well, we do know that so many people rely on Airbnb income to pay their rent on the host side. So we do see that uh, in companies that have economic challenges, more and more people opening up their homes, which actually makes it a great experience for travelers uh, who want something different. So you guys raised money for the first time uh, in 2009 when it was actually really hard to raise money. Um, how did you guys think about building the business so that you were not dependent on outside capital as people start to worry if the market is going to turn again? Do you have any lessons to pass along? Um, you know, I think one of the things we realized in 2009, all of 2008, we had tried to raise money. Uh, and this was actually even before the recession began. And people thought, you know, this is a crazy idea. Uh, it can't be a big market. And we got turned down left and right. And then, then now the recession begins. And we, we came across Sequoia, who saw our vision. And we were so blown away that, you know, a top investment firm would invest in us after so many people said no. I think what we learned from that is it's... Uh, it's amazing what you can achieve when you set your standards really high. And ever since that point, we were very uh, particular about who, who were our investors. Did you literally go for a year with no one else investing? A year of no's? Absolutely. Yes, it was a whole year. And at the end of that first year, we were on the verge of quitting. We actually, when we went to YC, we had an agreement amongst the three of us founders that if YC didn't produce any change in results, that we would actually quit. So what's your advice to founders now who might be like getting a lot of no's? It's all about perseverance at the end of the day. Uh, you know, you've got to pace yourself uh, because things don't come easy. You usually have to pivot a few times. Uh, a fam famous saying Paul Graham has that I really like is uh, 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 startups die of suicide, not homicide, meaning usually self-inflicted wounds. They don't plan appropriately. How did you guys survive when you had no money before the product was really working? <laughs> well, there's the fun story of how it all we comes out now. <laughs> created the, uh, the breakfast cereal called Obama O's and Captain McCain's right in advance of the, the election. Did that really generate revenue? Then? It generated $30,000, which is more than we made doing anything else that whole year. Wow, that's insane. So, well, obviously, now you're on to bigger and better things. True. Um, you're working on so-called Magical Trips, which is um, a play to own more of the travel experience, like think chefs, bike rentals, tours. 
What other services can Airbnb provide to hosts and travelers? And how do you expand the business opportunity beyond the trip? Well, I think what we're seeing is that uh, Airbnb is going increasingly mainstream. Uh, one third of all of our hosts are over the age of 50. Um, and then in traveler segments, uh, business travel has become an interesting segment. We now have 5,000 businesses registered with Airbnb. Uh, and some big companies like, uh, like uh, Morgan Stanley, Google, Salesforce, uh, having their employees book their travel. Uh, and what's happening is those companies are saving money, uh, but also the employees are getting to feel like they're at home when they travel. It's really good if you're on a, a long trip, like a week or more. How big do you think is the total addressable market outside? Of, of what you're already doing. What is the, what is the, mar the market for these There's things? all different measures. I mean, tourism is one of the biggest industries, second probably only to oil and gas. Uh, you see different numbers out there. Anywhere from two to six trillion is the ultimate size of tourism. Right. Uh, and we think we can play in a big part of that space. We don't think much of that is off limits. Would you ever partner, would you ever get into ride sharing or partner with like Uber or Lyft to take travelers from the airport to their Airbnb? Well, I, I don't want to speculate about those kinds of things. Will, will you <laughs> really, <ever> do, please. <laughs> will you ever do longer term rentals? Like many years ago, I found my apartment because I stayed in an Airbnb first and it seemed like a great way to actually just find where I want to live for a long time. That's a common use case. So when you're moving to a city for the first time, uh, before you commit to a long-term lease, why don't you stay uh, a couple weeks in different neighborhoods to yeah, get a feel for exactly it uh, and, and find the right place? Uh, and we do have a lot of folks who book a place for one to three months. Anything where you need to book sight unseen, Airbnb is a great solution. So you guys uh, just had another big moment in Cuba. You got a big shout out from President Obama. You've you know, had great success in Cuba itself. What are other opportunities for Airbnb diplomacy in other parts of the world that are off limits to US travelers? What about Iran? <laughs> Well, you know, those things, uh, the speed of those things aren't really dictated by us. Ultimately, there has to be an easing of restrictions, uh, and that is in motion, but you just kind of have to wait till you get word. Uh, so we don't have an ETA for Iran, but Cuba was an amazing experience uh, to be down there with the president uh, a few weeks ago. First time a president has visited, an American president has visited in 88 years. And to speak with our hosts who say, uh, you know, their guests from America come uh, for three days but ask 50 years worth of questions. And, and we've had Americans from 50 states now go to Cuba, uh, and so quite a diverse selection. Now, I do want to address the regulatory issues. You guys helped draft a law in San Francisco to legalize Airbnb, basically saying it's legal if you register, if you register uh, first. There's a new report from the city that claims Airbnb still has listings from unregistered hosts and won't cooperate with the city. What's your response to that? Well, I think the core problem there is the registration process that is the city has put in place. It's tremendously complicated. It requires you getting two different permits. And I think what's being forgotten is that these are ordinary people whom they're asking to go through all these different steps. Um, and the city isn't, isn't really promoting this. They're actually, in a lot of ways, cracking down on this. Um, for example, they've uh, recently sent out a notice to hosts in San Francisco asking them to itemize all the belongings in their home and that saying that they need to apply a business tax to everything from the silverware to the TV to the couch. We think this, is, uh, this doesn't make sense. This is missing the bigger picture. Uh, but meanwhile, we do have a good relationship in some ways with the city, and we've been uh, helping to collect and remit tax uh, for the last year and a half. So I know San Francisco is currently doing some things I don't think are that sensible, but you, at this point you're in 34,000 cities around the world, last time I heard. Um, six years ago, uh, seven years ago I guess now, which is the last time I was really closely involved uh, with Airbnb, I remember you were thinking hard about launching your second city. So as you've gone from two cities to 34,000 cities in um, seven years or less, 
what's changed about how you have to run the business? What's been surprising? There's a lot of complexity. We, like you said, we're in 191 countries, 34,000 different cities, and uh, there's a lot of things you have to do differently in terms of co providing customer support, language, uh, payments, and now policy. Uh, so we have about 20 offices now. And so just having a global team means I'm on the road a lot. Uh, and uh, just making sure that we're working together as one team because six, seven years ago, it was three guys sitting around a table this size. And now it's an organization of 2,500 people uh, dispersed around the globe. That's just a fundamentally different way of, of operating. Uh, and it's a real challenge. I like to say that every year, it feels like an entirely different company. Yeah. So Brian already told me, IPO, more than two years out. You've told me the same thing before. I'm not even going to ask. Um, but Sources are telling us that Airbnb is going to be profitable this year. Is that true? Uh, we're doing quite well financially. We had a big year last year, uh, and it won't be too long before we're profitable. All right. Don't rush, though. <laughs> Advice from the top. No, we like. I mean, we, seriously, we though. think there's a lot of uh, growth opportunity yet still. So we're definitely in no rush to be profitable. If, if we had been in a rush, we would be profitable long before. So how are you thinking about unit economics in this environment? I mean, is the environment impacting your we decisions? We are extremely well capitalized, and we see all these new segments uh, that we think we can thrive in, including business travel, vacation rentals, we're growing in China, Cuba. Uh, so we want to make sure that we're investing for growth, um, but we're also running the business robustly. Look, I think Airbnb, I don't know the exact numbers, I assume they have fabulous unit economics, but uh, if they can't find a really good way to invest those profits and more growth, I would be really disappointed. You were listening to Nate Blacharzik, CTO and co-founder of Airbnb, and Sam Altman, head of Y Combinator. Brad, what do you make of Nate saying there that they could have been profitable a long time ago if they wanted to well, be? Well, first of all, can I compliment you on your pronunciation of Blacharzik? I hope it's correct. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know that <laughs> there's any correct the way to spell time. that you name. You should know. <laughs> um, look, I mean, I think what's, what was revealing about what we just heard was Nate defining really the, the, the market opportunity for Airbnb as the entire tourism market. You know, maybe Two, two trillion dollars. So um, they made a decision a long time ago to be vertically focused on travel, not a sharing economy company, but to really look at the travel experience. And they define that experience as the moment that somebody books an accommodation and a flight online to the entire trip and what you're doing on that trip. And right now, um, you know, they're, they're giving you a place to live, but there's a lot more they can do from recommending restaurants to organizing meals in people's homes. You met, you, you asked them about the car sharing agreement, uh, arrangement, pr potential partnership. I think that's a good point. Could they, could they tie up with a Lyft? or an Uber. There's a lot that they can do. And the, the quote about profitability, I mean, I think is what he's saying is there's so much opportunity that they just want to keep investing. How much do you think the regulatory issues will slow them down? Is that just short-term pain? I think it'll slow them down, mm -hmm. right? And we've seen, I mean, in places like San Francisco and New York, they have had to get serious uh, about kicking those illegal hoteliers off their system. I mean, there is still a gap between what they talk about when they talk about Airbnb, which is people sharing their home to make ends meet, and the reality, which is some of that, but also people who maybe moved out of their home in San Francisco but still own it because they can make more money by just renting it out. And that might be uh, harming communities and hurting the overall housing supply. Now, uh, what, what's interesting is Jessica Livingston, even though she says she still can't tell very early on which companies will be successful, when I first moved to Silicon Valley, Airbnb was the very first company she recommended to me, and this was five years ago, she said, you have to meet Brian Chesky, you have to meet the guys at Airbnb. This company is going places, and it was still small back then, but it was already showing signs that it could be something big. 
Unlike a lot of companies, Airbnb was not newly formed when it, when it joined Y Combinator. They had struggled and almost died about four times. And as a result, you know, they had a kind of grit and a fortitude, and they also had an amazing story. And if you've met uh, Brian Chesky or here we heard from Nate, I mean, they're great storytellers. Joe Gebbia, too, the other co-founder. And the way that they could spin up the tale that first year and, their, and all their near-death experiences is very compelling. And I think Jessica and, and, uh, and Paul, you know, saw... Uh, that these guys were seasoned, even though the company was still very small, they were seasoned, uh, they had a great, uh, a great idea, and they had a sensibility, a design sensibility, because of their backgrounds as designers that really made them unique. Now, last but not least, Jessica Livingston, who Paul Graham has called YC's secret weapon. Uh, she's coming up next. After 11 years at Y Combinator, she's decided to take a year off to pursue some other projects. Take a listen to what she had to say about that decision. I'm leaving just to take a year off. Um, I've been doing it for 11 years. I've had two kids in that time, and Y Combinator is all-consuming, and it's just hard to do anything for 11 years that's all-consuming. So I just want to take a year off, think about things, uh, let my mind open up, think about some things, do some writing, and be with my sons. They're seven and four now, and I, I really want to spend some quality time. But I will be back. So uh, now that you and Paul are, will both be gone, and you at least uh, temporarily, talk to mm -hmm. us about the management changes at YC. We just heard from you know, Paul's successor, Sam. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on how, how the company has changed and the people that you have in place? Well, I wouldn't be leaving if I didn't feel 100% confident that you know, my baby was in good hands. So I feel your really third great. Child. My third child, exactly. I feel so confident about where Y Combinator is right now. We have an amazing team led by Sam, hand selected in, in most of the cases by me and Paul. And we've known all these partners for so long. The team is just working really well together. So I feel great. I feel like that year is going to go by and I'm going to come back and things will be in an even better position. So you guys just had the, the Women's uh, YC Founder Conference this week yeah. and the excitement was in the air. There was so much enthusiasm there. You were on stage and you had a more sort of practical tone. And mm -hmm. you've seen you've seen so much over the years. Yeah. Half the companies at YC aren't that YC's funded yeah. aren't around anymore. This is a hard business. Has your optimism about startups changed at all? Like how has it evolved in a decade? <laughs> Well, I do give, tend to give practical talks because I see so much of the bad things that happen to founders. So I'm always find myself defaulting to warning them about things. I had sort of hoped that my talk would be perceived as inspirational because I was distilling my advice into four different things and saying, if you do these four things, you're going to succeed. So, um, but but my, I'm still optimistic about startups. They're hard. If most people fail who do them, but you've just been talking to Dropbox and Airbnb. You, ha you do have these wonderful success stories, and the whole goal of the Female Founders Conference on Monday was to ha inspire more women to start startups so that we can have more of these big winners, these unicorns, right. led, founded and led by women. So, and I know this has been a big push for you, something you've been really focused on. What continues to hold women back? Why don't we have more women founders? Is it because VCs are almost all men? Uh, is it because of other things? Why? Well, I think it's, it's a very complex problem, and there's a lot of different answers to that. 
I've been seeing more women applying to Y Combinator. I mean, Y Combinator in some ways is a proxy for things that are, are going on, and we've been seeing more female applicants. We've been funding more women. These things do take time. I see women getting funded by all the male investors. I mean, yes, we need more female investors, but within YC, some of the most successful rounds that have been raised in the past year have been by the female founders. So it just, I think we need to keep working. It just takes some time. It does not happen overnight. So Paul, your husband, wrote a very controversial post, and I know you saw him take a lot of heat for it, about income inequality, where he said mm. it's basically a necessary evil if we want to promote entrepreneurship. A lot of people disagreed with him. He did write a follow-up post. Um, and YC is now funding something, basic income, a research study on, on basic income. Why is YC doing this? And, and you know, wh what do you think Paul was trying to say? Well, I don't really want to sort of get, into, even though I know Paul very well, I don't really <laughs> want to talk about his essays and what he was trying to say. Um, with most of Paul's, all of Paul's essays, he's trying to figure things out and he's giving deep thought, you know, weeks and weeks of thought to explaining complex things. And what he says is not always going to be what people want to hear. Mm -hmm. um, and sometimes the loudest complainers, you know, they're out there and they're complaining more than the people who emailed him and said thank you for writing this essay. It, it was really insightful. So you've seen so many cycles as co-founder of YC. Where do you mm -hmm. think we are in this cycle? Like bubble or boom? That's the question. Um, to be honest, having been through a couple cycles now, I try not to think about it. You heard uh, Nate tell you they started in 2008. They were getting funding in 2009. Could not have been a worse time in recent years to be out there fundraising. But if you're building something that people want and you have a good growth rate, you will be able to find funding. So, you know, maybe it'll be a little bit harder, but. Don't think about that right now. So YC just had its biggest exit ever with Cruise, which sold to GM for a for billion dollars. Yes. Car, Self-car driving car technology. Mm -hmm. Airbnb, Dropbox, and Stripe haven't had exits yet, though they're, they're valued very highly. Mm -hmm. What made Cruise such a success, and how do you get more of those? <laughs> Emily, I spent a lot of time thinking about this. This is the hardest thing. Choosing startups at the stage where we choose them is so hard that even after I've been doing this for 11 years, I still don't feel very confident in my ability. Really? Yeah, it's hard. Why? It's hard because every idea when they're just getting started um, doesn't look impressive. They have no growth metrics. You're really judging things on the founder. Now, we knew Kyle. I've known Kyle since he was in college, and I've always been impressed with him, and we had, of course, funded him through Justin TV and Twitch, and so I had known him. So when he came to us with this idea that seemed kind of crazy, self-driving cars, that was just a no-brainer for us. Absolutely, we're going to fund Kyle. And, you know, it worked out. There's a lot of impressive founders with potentially big ideas that we fund that fail. And it's, it's so hard to predict. So last question I asked Sam as well, but um, I want to ask you, as you scale YC, or at, at least others will be scaling it for the year that you're gone, how do you make it bigger but keep what makes it great? Oh, that's actually something I'm going to be thinking a lot of about when I'm mm -hmm. I'm gone because um, 
you know, the, the community is so important and it really uh, fosters, a, it's, it, it's an important part of the community once they leave Y Combinator, much less when you're going through the intense three months. I think we're doing a pretty good job. As Sam said, we have to sort of scale up the partners who can advise the startups as we're scaling Y Combinator so that there is a sense of I'm getting good advice, people do care about me. Um, and we just have to figure out how to keep it this, this wonderful place where people trust each other and get good advice and still produce good startups. Next week, we're back with more. We will hear from Silicon Valley's legendary entrepreneur and investor, Peter Thiel, a polarizing and sometimes controversial visionary. He started six of his own funds, co-founded PayPal and Palantir, backed SpaceX and Elon Musk. We will get a glimpse of what he's interested in investing in next and much more. And make sure you subscribe to the Studio 1.0 podcast. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and at Bloomberg.com backslash podcasts. And don't forget, leave us a rating. It'll help more listeners discover our content. Content. Finally, here's a shout out to our editor, Aaron Black, our producer, Pia Gatkari, and our whole technical crew. And thanks to Brad Stone, global head of technology at Bloomberg News, at Brad Stone on Twitter. And keep following me. I'm at Emily Chang TV. See you next time. Brought to you by BASF. We create chemistry.